Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us from a glider pilot's one-man landing in Sicily through sitting for Hitler's artist, a wartime friendship that lasted half a century, and an airman's encounter with a Hollywood legend. We begin this week with this from Tim Worgan. Hi, James and Al. This is a story of a forgotten hero, my wife's grandfather, John Ainsworth. John was the co-pilot, navigator, of the first glider to land at Pegasus Bridge in the early hours of June the 6th, 1944. John died at a relatively young age following the war and never talked in any depth to his family about his experiences. It was likely that he was suffering from PTSD. After being medically discharged from the army, he shunned the limelight. As a result, his part in many incredible operations, including Pegasus Bridge, has been largely overlooked. John joined up in 1939 as a clerk in the Royal Army Service Corps, attached to 145 field ambulance with whom he deployed to France in January 1940. He was evacuated from Dunkirk on the 31st of May, describing the tea he was given on arriving back in England as the best drink he'd ever had. Desperate for action, John volunteered to join the newly formed Special Service Battalions in July. As part of Number 4 Commando, he took part in Operation Claymore, a raid on the Norwegian Lofoten Islands. Following this raid, he returned to the Commando Training School as an instructor before volunteering for the Glider Pilot Regiment in March 1942. After flight training, he was posted to the 1st Glider Pilot Regiment in early 43, where he was almost immediately deployed to Tunisia to take part in Operation Ladbrook, the Allied invasion of Sicily. John flew an American Waco glider, with some members of the South Staffordshire Regiment on board, towed by an American crewed Dakota. The flying conditions were difficult with poor visibility and high winds, and it seems the inexperienced American crew panicked, casting off John's glider too early and low. On cast off, the tow rope damaged the glider, resulting in it going into a steep dive. John had no choice but to pancake the glider tail-first into the sea, saving all on board, a superb feat of airmanship. 
John never forgave the American crews for casting them off early, calling them cowards. All on board took refuge on the wings of the now-floating glider that was still one and a half miles out to sea. After saving two of the troops and drowning, John remembered he had a tin of cigarettes in the glider. He stripped down to his underwear and dived back into the submerged glider, through the fuselage door and retrieved the cigarettes. After some time sitting on the wing smoking, John decided to swim ashore and get help. Remaining in his underwear and taking only his fighting knife, he swam the one and a half miles to the coast where he came ashore underneath an Italian pillbox. Its occupants fired on him as he crawled through barbed wire entanglements for some 300 yards inland. There, he spotted an Italian sentry and letting him come within five yards, John killed the sentry without a sound with his knife. Taking the dead man's rifle and ammunition, he moved inland, silently killing two more Italians with his knife on the way. At first light, John saw that he was within range of a house occupied by the Italians and began to take pot shots at it until he was captured by a patrol. He was taken to an Italian HQ, along with several other British troops, where he was questioned about why he was covered in blood. Luckily, he had disposed of his knife, believing if he was captured with it he would be shot out of hand if he was found responsible for the deaths of the three Italians. It was at this point that John and two officers from the glider pilot regiment decided to try and demoralise the 40 Italian soldiers guarding them. They told them that the 8th Army was near at hand and they'd be saved if they surrendered. The roar of armoured vehicles in the distance persuaded their Italian captors. The game was up. John and his fellow glider pilots continued to fight independently until linking up with the Royal Scots Fusiliers. For his actions in Sicily, John was awarded the military medal, while everyone from his glider was later rescued and safely returned to Tunisia. This was only the start of John's adventures. He served with Popsky's private army in the Libyan desert, co-piloted and navigated glider number one to Pegasus Bridge, took part in Operation Market Garden, where he escaped by swimming the Rhine, yet again in his underwear. And finally... Having been selected to form the backbone of an Indian glider pilot regiment, escaped death when the plane he was travelling in crashed in the Pyrenees, killing all but five on board. He had an extraordinary career, and even more extraordinary luck. I only wish I could have met him. He truly was an unsung hero, who suffered greatly following the war and the end of his military service. Very best wishes, Tim Worgan. Our next story this week comes from Paula Thornhill. Dear James and Al, my story is about a sketch. It's artist and two young GIs at the end of the war. My dad, Corporal Joseph Thornhill, was in the 308th Field Artillery Battalion in the 78th Infantry Division. Although trained as a 105mm howitzer cannoneer, most of his time in combat was as a member of an artillery forward observer team. Dad's FO team fought together in the Hurtgen Forest and Ardennes, then the Battle for Schmidt and the Ruhr Dams, crossed the Rhine via the Remagen Bridge and finally moved north to the Ruhr. That's where the division finished the war. When the fighting ended in Europe, the 78th Division was slated to return home for a bit of leave, then ship out to the Pacific Theatre. Japan's surrender, however, changed that plan. Instead, in late fall, the 78th was assigned to occupation duties in Berlin. In Berlin, Dad and his friend Lou guarded senior Nazis. They were given strict orders against fraternisation, but being GIs in post-war Germany, they took these orders more as suggestions. One of the detainees they guarded was artist Franz Stassen. Stassen had joined the Nazi party in 1930 
and in September 1944, Goebbels included his name on the Gottbeg Narditen list, important artist exemption list, having deemed Stassen and his art critical to preserving Nazi culture. Lou, over time, came to know Stassen well enough to have him draw his picture on a napkin. Lou subsequently showed it to Joe. Here's Lou's own words about what happened next. Joe asked if I thought the artist would draw a picture of him. So we went back with better paper, and I traded a couple of cigarettes for the drawing. When it was time to leave Berlin, they used a point system to figure out who would be discharged. Joe had more points than I did, so was able to leave first. He gave me the picture and said, Here, you can remember me. And that's how Lou ended up with my dad's sketch. Dad left Berlin around Christmas 1945. Lou came home in 1946, bringing the sketch with him. Over the years, my dad spoke a bit about the drawing, but forgot Lou had it. So, we knew a sketch existed and had heard vague story that it had been done by one of Hitler's artists, but that was it. And there matters rested until November 2022. Lou, it turns out, had wanted to return the sketch for years, but had misplaced it. His son-in-law, aware of Lou's search, stumbled on it buried in a folder in a filing cabinet in November 2022. Once discovered, Lou's daughter began looking for a family member to send it to. She found my sister in early December, and so, 77 years later, my dad's sketch came home in time for Christmas 2022. Lou's daughter questioned him on our behalf about the sketch and associated events so many years ago. That's how we learned, after all this time, the rest of the story. And Lou, in the process, gave my family some new nice memories of my dad, a lovely man who passed away back in 2007. Lou said Dad was very brave, he didn't get shaken when shelled like some of the others. He was steady and good to be with. And I remember that he always combed his hair. He was a neat soldier. We suspected all of this, but it was nice to hear someone he served with saw these qualities as well. Thank you again for your amazing work. What you are doing is hugely important. Well, thank you, Paula. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Our next story comes this week from Graham McCulloch. As a child growing up in the 1970s in rural northeast Scotland, my grandparents, Davy and Alice, had some fairly exotic friends, Leslie and Eileen, who were terribly English and visited from the other end of the country, Leytonston in London. For years, we grandchildren assumed that Davy and Leslie were something in the war together, but there were never any war stories, and it came as a total surprise when we realised the old comrades were in fact Alice and Eileen. My grandmother, Alice Rollo, was born in north-east Scotland in 1924. She was the sixth child of a cattleman, whose work included frequent moves as he secured new positions at the twice-yearly farmers' hiring markets. In Alice's own words, In May 1942, I was 17 and a half years old. The newspapers were full of adverts for girls to work as radio operators to free up men to be sent overseas. I had two brothers abroad, Jim in North Africa and John in Burma, so felt it was my duty to volunteer. I got an application form and filled it in, but as I was under 18 I had to get a parent's signature. Dad refused and told me I could join the Land Army and stay at home. I replied that I wasn't going to stay in muck buyers and harvest neeps. He said, that's enough of that, and threw the form in the fire. Alice stuck it out until her 18th birthday when she completed the application for radio operator, putting her occupation as children's nurse as she knew they had no vacancies for that. Three weeks later, on a Friday, she travelled to Inverness for her medical and aptitude tests. After her interview, she was asked to report to Glencourse Barracks in Edinburgh the following Monday. Training at Glencourse consisted of drill, route marches, learning abbreviations and the 24-hour clock. In February 1943, she was sent to Oswestry Training Barracks to learn to be a radar operator. Further training at Bude Firing Camp in Cornwall was followed by postings across England. The 6th of June 1944 saw Alice being stood down as they couldn't get a proper signal on the radar set, and they were told, in her words, to go outside and see something we would never forget. The sky was full of planes, some towing gliders. September 1944 saw the AA battery disbanded, Alice and her friend Eileen opted for clerical training and were shipped out from Tilbury to Antwerp, being bombed en route, and a posting with Remy to Roubaix, near Lille. Here her job was keeping the order of battle up to date with all men and vehicles in Remy HQ line of communication. Alice crossed the Rhine with the Remy on Easter Sunday 1945 and celebrated the end of the war with liberated champagne in a tin mug. Another posting to Brussels followed with G Branch and bullets on Avenue Louise. Evenings were spent at the Montgomery Club in Brussels and she even had an encounter with the man himself when he visited their offices for morning coffee. Despite the briefness of this meeting, Monty appears to have made quite an impression. As we planned Alice's funeral in 2019, my aunt remarked, I always thought she had a bit of a crush on him. Granny's wartime adventure ended with a flight back to RAF Northolt and D-Mob at Aldershot. She kept in touch with her wartime friend Eileen for over 50 years. She was proud to have served in the same branch of service as the Queen and Winston Churchill's daughter, Mary Soames. That was from Graham McCulloch. Our final story this week is from Andrew France, Al and James. I'd like to share the Second World War experience of my grandparents and that of my hometown, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Without a doubt, its most famous contribution to the war was that of the Bethlehem Steel, which played an important role in my family's story. 
the company employed just over 13,000 people at the start of the war. By 1945, nearly 284,000 worked at its Bethlehem facilities, as well as its mills and shipyards across the country. During the war, Bethlehem Steel produced 70% of the country's airplane cylinder forgings, one-fourth of America's warship armour plating, and one-third of the military's cannon forgings. Most famously, at the start of 1943, the company's president, Eugene Grace, promised FDR that the company would produce a ship a day. The company exceeded this goal, producing and building 1,127 ships during the course of the war, one-fifth of the US Navy, including the USS Missouri, upon which the Japanese surrendered. My paternal grandfather, Ralph France Jr., was 22 and working an office job at the Steel when his country found itself at war. Remarkably, he was initially rejected from the draft for being underweight. By May 1942, he had bulked up enough to be conscripted into the US Army Air Force. He joined a B-17 training squadron at Gowan Field in Boys, Idaho. He didn't say much about his time in training, but often shared a story of one night he spent out on the town when he missed the last bus back to the base and decided to hoof it back. While walking in the dark, he heard a jeep drive up behind him and stop. A familiar-sounding voice called out and asked where he was going. Ralph turned around to see the driver was none other than his flight instructor, First Lieutenant James Jimmy Stewart, who had already won an Academy Award for the 1941 film The Philadelphia Story. The Hollywood legend politely drove my grandfather back to his barracks and made pleasant conversation along the way. Soon after, luck began to intervene for Ralph. Shortly before his squadron went to England, he came down with a terrible case of rubella. It took time to recover, and by then... His crew and buddies were long gone. When he was healthy, he went via supply plane on a circuitous route to England via British Guyana and French North Africa. Upon arrival in the UK, he was sent to a replacement depot. As a trained radio machine gunner, he didn't expect to be there long, but again, luck had a say. Officers came to the depot explaining there was a newly arrived B-24 group in need of a trained typist for its service group. Prior to the war, Ralph had graduated from business school where he'd taken typing courses. So, sure enough, Staff Sergeant France found himself as a Clark typist with Headquarters and Base Services Squadron 369th Air Service Group out of RAF Halesworth in Suffolk. My grandfather didn't say much of his wartime service, but a few stories occasionally came to the surface. He spoke of being issued weapons on D-Day for fear of a retaliatory airborne attack by the Germans. He claimed to have been on leave in London the first time it was targeted by V-2s. He also always said that the closest he came to being truly scared was the night a Lancaster suffered serious engine trouble nearby and requested to make an emergency landing at the airfield with a bomb bay loaded with incendiaries. The group completed its European tour on November 29, 1944 and along with Ralph's air service group returned to the States to retrain on B-29s for a Pacific deployment. Thankfully, the Japanese surrendered before they were sent abroad. Ralph was discharged in November and returned to Bethlehem and office work at the Steel, where a few years later he met my grandmother, Bernice Mayers. She was several years his junior and was in high school when war was declared, but in a major industrial town, everyone was needed. In the autumn of 1943, the Steel Company made an arrangement with the school that older students would attend classes in the morning and work at the steel plant in the afternoons and early evenings. For Bernice, this meant a job as a secretary in the orders department, where she primarily handled the Navy's orders for nuts and bolts. This schoolwork arrangement continued until her graduation in the spring of 1944. From her time at the steel, my grandmother always remembered a day when a careless typo increased the number of bolts by a factor of ten. 
Her supervisor exploded in a fit of rage. She also spoke of how the heat and flame from the mill caused a red glow in the sky that could be seen for miles every night and fondly remembered that when news of the war's end was announced, she and the other girls tore up all the order sheets and threw them around the office like confetti. All the best, Andrew France. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the member's site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.